hoax, not a dream. A podcast about comic book characters who just don't quit. You can try to write them off, but they'll just get written back in. You can try to kill them, but they'll just get better. I'm your host, Ben Rathbone, and I'm recording from the antimatter universe. The people here. Well, frankly, we don't see eye to eye, politically speaking. They're all one-issue voters, basically. They just hate matter. And I know that's just because of the news telling them to hate it, so it's not their fault. But I can't stand talking to them anymore. I'm going to have to find another universe to go to soon. Luckily, there's a lot of them to choose from. Like, an infinite amount, if we buy into the many-worlds theory. Speaking of which, that actually relates to our episode today. The idea that there's countless alternate realities spanning a multiverse is very familiar to comic book readers by now, and the concept has maybe reached its pop culture zenith in the current moment, whether it be the excellent new film Everything Everywhere at Once or the next Marvel movie Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. But back in 1985, DC Comics was trying to get rid of worlds, not add them. And the centerpiece of this episode revolves around a storyline that would take a knife to their very own multiverse. Kara Zor-El, Supergirl, would be a casualty in this undertaking. But before we get to that story, let's start, as we usually do, with the character's first appearance. What the hell is that? Is that a bird? Is it a plane? Well, just a guy in a pair of tights and a cape. Superman's debut in 1938 was a smash success, redefining comics and just plain old defining the superhero genre. He begins to spread into other media in 1940, when The Adventures of Superman hits the radio waves. In 1943, the radio program first introduces Kryptonite, a glowing radioactive green rock from Superman's home planet that can seriously mess him up. Upon his introduction, Superman operated as a fighter for social justice foiling the plans of corrupt politicians, war profiteers, and slumlords. That focus changed as time went on, fighting the war efforts in the 40s, and encountering aliens, monsters, and other science fiction staples in the 50s. In 1958, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen uses a magic totem to wish a helper for Superman into existence. This Supergirl has a short life, dying while protecting Superman against a giant kryptonite meteor. Reactions to a female counterpart to Superman were overall positive, leading to the introduction of a more permanent Supergirl in Action, Action. Comics, Comics, number 252, by writer Otto Binder and artist Al Plastino. Reporter Clark Kent is clacking away on his company typewriter when his super hearing picks up a strange roaring sound from far away. Using his telescopic vision, he sees something that looks like a missile zooming towards the Earth. Clark detects that there's a person inside the missile, who could be in danger, so decides that this is a job for Superman. Or, rather, a job for him. Because he's Superman. Clark, Clark Kent is Superman. Clark quickly changes into his tights and cape and flies off, but even with his super speed, he's too late to stop the rocket from crashing into the ground. Guess he shouldn't have taken the time to strip off his reporter duds. Superman doesn't know any human-built craft that could move as fast as it did. In fact, it reminds him of the rocket that bore him to Earth as a superbaby. He worries for the passenger he detected earlier. Surely no one could survive such a violent landing, not unless they have the same invulnerability as him, anyway. 
And so Superman is super shocked to see a blonde, blue-eyed teenage girl pop out of the rocket, completely unharmed, and wearing a version of his own costume in the form of a skirt. Don't worry, Superman. I'm alive without a scratch. Soups is glad to hear it, but he has questions. A lot of them. And many of them likely the same as anyone reading the comic or listening to this right now. First of all, is she invulnerable just like him? How did she come to be here? Why is she wearing a costume that looks like his without ever meeting him? How did she know his name? If she's from space, how does she know English? To answer, she's from Krypton too, so possesses the same power set granted the Kryptonians thanks to the greater gravity on their home planet compared to the lesser gravity on Earth. When Krypton blew up, a large chunk of the planet was jettisoned off into space. It stayed intact by chance, atmosphere and food machine included. That was the good news. The bad news was that the nuclear explosion that blew up the planet also converted all remaining pieces into kryptonite, a radioactive element harmful to Kryptonians. But good news, a scientist named Zorel stockpiled rolls of lead sheet metal in his lab, enough to line the ground to protect everyone against the radiation. This allowed life to go on. Zorel found a wife named Allura, and the two of them gave birth to a baby girl named Kara, the girl in front of Superman this very moment. But bad news, a meteor swarm intersected the fragile fragment of Krypton, smashing the lead lining in the ground to bits. Zorel only had a month before the radiation would reach deadly levels, a month he spent desperately building a way for his daughter to escape. While he built a rocket, he entrusted his wife to use their super space telescope to find a suitable planet to send their child to. After browsing around, Allura found one with a man who can fly and perform incredible feats of strength. After learning English by watching TV, Allura found out that this Superman is from Krypton, so knows her daughter would have superpowers there too. Sounds like a winner! Allura sewed together a costume like Superman, so Superman would recognize her, and the two loving parents pushed her into the rocket to launch it out into space, just as the radiation missed it out from the ground to kill them. Okay, that about covers everything. Superman is heartbroken by Kara's sad story and tells her that his father Jor-El launched him in a rocket right before dying as well, if it makes her feel any better. It does, but only because she recognizes that name. Jor-El was her father Korel's brother. Yo, that means we're cousins! Superman is overjoyed to hear this and gives Kara a hug. We may be orphans, but we have each other now. I'll take care of you, like a big brother. Wow, so that means I can come stay with you? Oh, um, well, let's not get carried away here. Uh, my alter-ego human identity, Clark Kent, kind of has this bachelor lifestyle going on right now, so cramping my style is not going to work. But hold on, I can do you one better. Superman teaches Supergirl how to fly and leads her to Smallville, the town he grew up in, and takes her to an orphanage. Uh, what did I tell you? Much better than my place in the city, huh? Oh, um, I, I guess, uh, hold that thought, I've got something else for you, too. Superman flies off and returns in an impossibly short moment with a brown wig styled in pigtails. There, now if you put on a schoolgirl's dress, no one will ever recognize you. Sure, but why? What, what are we doing here? Oh, you need a secret identity. That's how this works. Mine is Clark Kent. He's this dweeb that wears glasses. Once I put them on, no one can tell it's me. It's great. You'll also need a name. Oh, um, well, I've just used my super hearing to pick out the names of countless girls around the world. How about Linda Lee? 
works for Superman, even though he reflects that it's odd that so many women in his life have LL initials. He takes Linda and talks to the orphanage head, telling him that the girl has just lost her parents in a disaster, which, as he thinks in his thought bubble, is technically true. Linda is accepted in, because it's... like, Superman. What is he gonna do, say no to Superman? His job now done, Superman prepares to leave. But before he does, he tells Supergirl that she must live the quiet life of a normal girl from Earth. At least for a while, before they can reveal her as Supergirl. This way, she can get used to earthly things. Kara agrees. The headmistress then shows her to her room, apologizing that she can't give her anything super nice since the place is overcrowded at the moment. Linda says no worries, and alone begins using her superpowers to tidy the place up. She straightens the crooked leg of her bed frame with super strength, blows the dust off her mattress with super breath, fuses her cracked mirror together with heat vision, and spies on her fellow orphans with x-ray vision. She then decides to sneak out and fly around town to scope out her new town. Satisfied with her surroundings, Supergirl decides that however long she'll be here, she'll help people out without being seen, acting like a guardian angel to those in need. The final narration of the story tells us that Supergirl's adventures will continue regularly in Action Comics, along with her cousin Superman's. The end. Pretty cute story. I like the visual of Supergirl just popping out from that rocket in full costume. These days, a lot of people look back at Superman's origin story, of how an existential threat requires parents to send their child to a better life, and see it as an early 20th century Jewish immigration allegory. Considering Superman's creators were born of Jewish immigrants, it's not too far-fetched. Viewed through that lens, it's actually pretty lovely to give the character a cousin with a very similar origin. It's someone to share his identity with. And by that I don't just mean his secret identity. Now he has a connection to the world he came from, the culture he never really knew. At last, Superman is no longer alone. You are familiar with the thought experiment, the ship of Theseus in the field of identity metaphysics. Naturally. The ship of Theseus is an artifact in a museum. Over time, its planks of wood rot and replaced with new planks. When no original plank remains, is it still the ship of Theseus? Secondly, if those removed planks are restored and reassembled free of the rot, is that the ship of Theseus? Neither is the true ship. Both are the well, then we are agreed. Supergirl's adventures continue in the backup stories in Action Comics for a few years until she's officially revealed to the world in 1962 by Superman in issue 285. She doesn't waste any time, saving Metropolis from big red feet by sending a capsule through time and bringing back a shrinking ray to dispatch with a monster. Superman carves out for Kara her own section in the Fortress of Solitude. She continues a superhero career parallel to Superman's for years, moving out to San Francisco and then Chicago. She helps her cousin destroy a weaponized satellite the size of a star by hurtling through it like a bullet, defeats an evil sorceress attempting to erase her consciousness, brings down a crime syndicate, helps defeat Brainiac and enlarge the bottled city of Kandor, beats up a neo-Nazi with cosmic energy powers, and frequently travels to the future to hang out with the Legion of Superheroes at one point facing off against Darkseid, buying the Legion enough time to foil the villain's plans. As Linda Lee, she also goes to drama school, becomes a student advisor, scores a high-profile part as a villain on the soap opera Secret Hearts, 
and studies psychology. In the real world, Supergirl sees her theatrical debut in 1984's Supergirl, a spin-off of the Superman film franchise, taking place after Superman 3. All's going well, you know, more or less, until entire universes begin vanishing off the face of the multiversal map. Some mysterious force is ripping through the cosmos, erasing whole realities before anything can be done to stop it. All of this seems to be tied to an evil being named the Anti-Monitor, who has just orchestrated the death of his good counterpart, the Monitor. The assembled heroes of the remaining Earths join together to face the Anti-Monitor in Crisis on Infinite Earths, number 7. By artist George Perez and writer Marv Wolfman, inkers Dick Giordano and Jerry Ordway, colorist Tom Ziuko, and letterer John Costanza. Three figures stand on a rock floating in space. They meet during what they know must be the calm in the storm, each of them survivors of the calamity destroying the multiverse. One of them is Lila, a woman just manipulated into killing her mentor, who was also perhaps the multiverse's best hope at survival. Another of the figures, Pariah, finds himself teleported to each universe on the eve of its destruction, forced to watch as every Earth is destroyed. The third person is Alexander Luthor, whose mysterious powers could hold the key to saving what's left. Only five universes, represented by five Earths, remain. First, there's Earth-1. That's the moneymaker, you know, DC's flagship Earth, where Superman and Batman are still relevant. Then there's Earth-2. In this one, Superman is old and Batman is dead. We got Earth-4, which is basically a bunch of characters from Charlton Comics that DC bought out. Fun fact about those characters, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons originally wanted to use them for their masterpiece Watchmen, but ended up creating new characters instead that are clearly based off the Charlton IPs. Rorschach is The Question, Night Owl is Blue Beetle, Comedian is Peacemaker, etc. Anyway, if you're wondering why we skipped Earth-3, well, Earth-3 was an Earth with an evil version of the Justice League called the Crime Syndicate, which ruled the world and where a good version of Lex Luthor was the only superhero. We saw it get destroyed in Crisis on Infinite Earths number 1. Alexander is actually from this Earth. His dad Lex sent him out in a rocket ship to survive the Calamity, you know, like Superman. Um, where was I? Right, Earth-1, Earth-2, Earth-4. Then there's Earth-S, which, like Earth-4, is made up of characters DC bought out from another publisher, this time Captain Marvel, or as he'll later be known for legal reasons, Shazam. He's got a whole family of other characters, like his cousin Mary Marvel and his uncle, uh, Uncle Marvel. Then, finally, there's Earth-X, where World War II never ends. Must suck to be in that one. The trio on the floating rock go and find representatives from each of the Earths, and bring them back to the floating rock. We got old Superman and young Superman representing their Earths, Blue Beetle representing Earth-4, Captain Marvel representing Earth-S, and Uncle Sam representing Earth-X. And yes, when I say Uncle Sam, I mean that Uncle Sam, the American propaganda poster dude always telling young men that he wants them. Oh, and there's also Lady Quark. Her universe was destroyed, but she's still around, so she's here. After some obligatory banter, Lila and Pariah give us a lengthy explanation as to how we got here. None of this really makes sense, but I'm going to try to explain it best as I can, so bear with me. Billions of years ago, on the planet Oa, there was a dude named Krona. If you remember Krona from the Mogo episode, yeah, same guy. Well, Krona decided he wanted to see the creation of the universe firsthand. Despite his people being more technologically advanced than any race to come after them, they'd never done this, and with reason. Legends said viewing the beginning of the universe would destroy it. 
But Krona didn't buy into any of that. He kept building his time TV thing, and when he finally finished, he witnessed the image of a hand grasping a cluster of stars at the start of time. The universe didn't like itself being watched so intimately, and so there was a cosmic reaction to the event that led to the creation of the antimatter universe. A sister planet to Oa was born inside the antimatter universe, named Quard, and on one of Quard's moons, a being named the Antimonitor was born. The Antimonitor created an elite army of dorks called the Thunderer Elite, who wield lightning weapons and shields and dress in all gold. The most powerful of the Thunder Elite transformed into Shadow Demons, and he sent his army out to conquer the Antimatter universe. Then, the Antimonitor detected his counterpart in the Positive Matter universe named, um, the Monitor, and the two fight each other for a million years, their war finally ending when they knock each other out, which is how they remain for nine billion years. That's where Pariah comes in. He was once a brilliant scientist, so brilliant he helped his Earth achieve paradise through his inventions. But he... <sighs> went too far when he decided he needed to see the origin of the universe. Everyone tells him not to, because of the legends that warn doing so would destroy the universe. Man, getting deja vu here, this comic was really anti-knowing the origin of the universe. We get it. The machine Pariah developed for the task created an antimatter chamber, which allowed him to penetrate the barrier between universes and experience the origin of everything firsthand. But, in doing so, he created a chain reaction that led to antimatter sweeping across his universe, destroying it. It also reverberated through the antimatter universe and woke up the antimonitor, and as if all that wasn't bad enough, the antimonitor realized he and his universe were stronger as the result of Pariah's universe being destroyed. So the Anti-Monitor set off to destroy more positive matter universes, in order to expand his power. His positive counterpart tried to rally against him, but died in the process. All this is to say that we need to gather up a bunch of powerful people from the different Earths and go attack the Anti-Monitor before he destroys what's left. The representatives from the five remaining Earths agree, and go off to hand-select allies for the assault. Once they have a force large enough to be formidable, but small enough to still fit on that floating rock they keep holding all their meetings on, Alexander Luthor opens up a portal to the antimatter universe, as that's the thing he can do, and Pariah leads the heroes through to the other side, into the massive stone fortress of the Antimonitor. The fate of the five Earths lays in the balance, so nerves are high. Cousins Kara Zor-El and Kal-El, Supergirl and Superman, express their anxieties have to admit, Kara. I'm a little worried. You too? I thought I was the only one. My god. What happens if we fail here? I don't want to think about it. While flying through the stone fortress, the two Kryptonians and Captain Adam lose the rest of the group in the strange Labyrinthian structure, and find that their x-ray vision is useless here. Adam wonders if his powers will even work. The strange nature of this dimension proves itself further when the statuary comes to life and attacks a separate subgroup that includes Earth-2 Superman. During the encounter, old Superman is astonished to see that a blow has left him bleeding. More of the stonework animates into monsters and attacks the entire ensemble by swinging their fists and firing lasers from their eyes. Earth-1 Superman and Supergirl do their best to defend themselves against the stone minions, noting that while they are unstoppable on Earth, they're weaker here. Captain Adam's atom blasts are effective, but the monsters reform as fast as he can destroy them. 
Supergirl tries a different approach, and after crashing through one of the gargoyle-type creatures, she uses her super breath to scatter the shattered pieces across the galaxy. This allows Superman to break past the fortress defenses, while a lot of the other heroes are stuck. He makes it inside the fortress, where he meets up with Dr. Light, a Japanese scientist with light powers. Together, they find a starlight absorption machine that the Anti-Monitor is using to reduce the vibrational differences between the last five Earths. Once the vibrations are reduced enough, they'll merge together, destroying one another. Dr. Light wants to study the machine, but Superman declares that he has to destroy it. Before he has the chance, however, the Anti-Monitor emerges from behind, unleashing a powerful energy blast. On his home turf, our hero would be able to withstand such an attack, but here, in this strange place, a scream of agony escapes his lips. Supergirl hears it, and as the narration says, Supergirl rushes ahead, knowing full well that whatever could bring such pain to her powerful cousin could certainly destroy her. But Supergirl is a hero, and her concerns are not for herself, but for the one she loves. Before she can get there, the Anti-Monitor continues his barrage, knocking Superman around like a ragdoll. You are believed the greatest of them all, but you and all the others will die. Your universes shall perish with you. Then mine shall be the only one to survive. Dr. Light attempts to intervene, but the Anti-Monitor easily brushes her aside. He continues pummeling Superman to near death. He's on the verge of killing Earth-1's strongest hero, when Supergirl bursts into the Inner Fortress, crashing through walls and flying directly into the Anti-Monitor. She lays into the villain with a furious melee of punches, managing to knock the towering, formidable foe off his feet. You? You're the one responsible for all this insanity? For all those deaths? How could you care so little for life? My God, all those people, those worlds, those universes, all gone, all gone. But the Anti-Monitor rallies, knocks the heroine away, and keeps her at bay with a blast of energy. He then focuses his attention on Superman again, ready to deliver the killing shot. Before he can, though, Supergirl lifts up the flooring of the fortress, sweeping the Anti-Monitor off his feet, tumbling through the air. She goes on the offensive again and manages to break open the shell that protects his life essence. The Anti-Monitor manages to knock her away again, but now his life energy is wildly leaking out from his body, his energies quickly waning. Desperate, the villain unleashes an unfathomed level of energy, deciding to end the lives of everyone all at once. The whole planet-sized fortress shakes with a display of power. Supergirl tells Dr. Light to take her cousin and find the others and escape from the Antimatter universe as fast as they can. Then she flies at the Antimonitor again, pushing him through the Starlight Collection Machine, destroying it. She punches the villain over and over again. Your plans are finished! It's all over! Over! Dr. Light watches as the pure antimatter that makes up the Antimonitor's inner form washes over Supergirl's body, killing her. The scientist decides that she can't just leave and expresses out loud that she has to stay and help. When Supergirl hears this, she turns around and yells, No! Go! Go now! Unfortunately, that moment is all the Anti-Monitor needs. He unleashes a deadly beam of energy that tears through Supergirl's body. Superman, now conscious, can only watch and scream out his cousin's Kryptonian name. His body and machine, now destroyed, the Anti-Monitor flees and escapes on a rocket, needing time to heal before he can fight on. Without its master, the fortress begins to fall apart. The collective heroes rush to the inner fortress and see Superman holding his dying cousin in his arms. 
her final words are as selfless as her sacrifice. Thank heaven. The worlds have a chance to live. You're crying. Please don't. You taught me how to be brave. And I was. I, I love you so much for what you are. For how good you are. In anger, Superman decides he's going to go after the Anti-Monitor and kill him. But the Kryptonian's older self convinces him that this isn't the time for blind vengeance. They need to leave and regroup for their best chance of saving all their worlds. So Superman carries Supergirl's corpse in his arms, and the team of powers fly away from the crumbling fortress, returning to their Earths. Supergirl's funeral services are held in Chicago, a large crowd in attendance, the superhero community among them. Batgirl gives the first eulogy. Her body is not buried in Chicago, however. Superman takes her first to the Fortress of Solitude, wrapped tightly in the iconic red cape emblazoned with a symbolic S. He then flies her to space, to rest with the stars. Sad. This has got to be one of the more famous superhero deaths in comics, even if only because of the iconic cover of the issue by George Perez, depicting Superman holding a bruised and tattered Supergirl in his arms, a look of pure anguish on his face. Behind him in the background are dozens and dozens of other DC characters, all faded, but clearly mourning if you look close enough. The image has been duplicated and referenced time after time over the years, the most notable time I can think of being the end of 2009's Final Crisis No. 6, drawn by J.G. Jones when Superman is this time holding the charred body of Batman in his arms. Despite its name, that series would not be the Final Crisis. It's wild that DC has returned to this well as often as it has, but also very predictable, and I'd say understandable. Before Final Crisis, we had 2005's Infinite Crisis, which is pretty much a direct sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths, featuring the return of old Superman and Alexander Luthor, and before that we had Identity Crisis. There's also Zero Hour, Flashpoint, Convergence, Dark Knight's Metal, and Dark Knight's Death Metal, all crises in their own right. DC used the Crisis title in 2018's Heroes in Crisis, and will use it again in the forthcoming Dark Crisis, coming out this year. Back in 1985, the original Crisis did something truly ambitious. It completely reset the board for their fictional universe, rebooting the status quo with fresh continuity. Regardless of how successful one might think they were, the task itself was monumental and unprecedented. But if I had a nickel for every time the DC Universe rebooted after that, well, I guess I'd have two nickels, but it's still weird it happened twice. You'll find people arguing for higher numbers and lower numbers than that, and we can get into the soft reboot versus hard reboot thing, but the point is it'd be hard to do something like this again without it feeling gimmicky. It's hard to imagine now, but at this point in time in comic book publishing, Supergirl's death actually felt like a consequence in the story. There was no reason to think she would come back in a short while, like we would now. Other versions of Supergirl would be introduced, but it'd be well over a decade before we would see Kara Zor-El again, and as we'll learn, we'd never see the Supergirl who died in Crisis Number 7, ever. That Supergirl, with those memories, truly met her end. Superman, how can you be... Alive? Toy Man sent me to the future. And Vandal Savage and I fought some giant cockroaches, and it's complicated. 
At the end of the crisis, our heroes defeat the Anti-Monitor. By the end of the saga, the remaining Earths have merged into one new reality that blends elements from the different Earths together into one. In this new universe, Supergirl Kara Zor-El is not just dead, but forgotten. The DC Universe has moved on without her, Superman once again becoming the only surviving Kryptonian in existence. Other people would assume the name Supergirl in the years to come, however. One is Matrix, a shape-shifting protoplasmic creature created by Lex Luthor in a pocket dimension. Matrix shapes herself into Supergirl for a while, but then stops, for reasons. One day, Matrix comes across a demonic cult member attempting to sacrifice a teenage girl in the woods. Matrix stops the ritual, but the girl is injured during the conflict. Matrix tries to save the girl, named Linda Danvers, and merges with her in the process. Once melded together, the two become Supergirl. This new Supergirl protects her hometown Leesburg, Virginia, and the world from strange and powerful threats, until one day an odd rocket ship falls down from the sky, towards the ground. Something about this seems familiar. Supergirl, Volume 4, Number 75 By Peter David, Writer Ed Beans, Pencils Alex Lay, Inks Brad Anderson, Colors and Separations, and Comicraft, Letters. Cover by Rob Haynes. As Supergirl, Kara Zorel, hurtles down to Earth in a rocket ship, Supergirl, Linda Danvers, is sharing a meal with her parents. Her mom is the first to see the rocket, and when Linda sees that it's headed for the center of town, she decides that this is a job for Supergirl, and flies off to intercept. She gets close enough to the mysterious object to push it with her telekinesis, and sends it to crash land in the nearby forest preserve. When Supergirl lands next to the craft to investigate, a hatch opens up, revealing, um, Supergirl, but this one wearing the same classic costume as in Action Comics number 252. Indeed, she says nearly the very same first line of dialogue. Don't worry, I'm alive without a scratch. I'm Kara zor from Planet Krypton. Linda Supergirl is skeptical. She knows that Superman is the only survivor from Krypton, and if she's just arriving here on Earth, why would she already have a Supergirl costume? How does she know English? Also, who talks like that and looks so chipper and crisp after being cooped up in a rocket ship? These questions remain unanswered for now, as a missile hits Linda in the back, ramming her into a cluster of trees where it explodes. The ballistic weapon was launched by a villain named Rebel, who flies into view inside his one-man futuristic flying craft. He has no idea who this other Supergirl still standing is, but decides that if she's a friend of the Supergirl he knows, then she's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. He unleashes a barrage of laser fire at Kara, but only manages to briefly confuse her. Huh? Are those... supposed to hurt? They... they are. Look what they're doing to... but I don't even feel them. Kara then takes to the air and realizes that her parents were right. This planet's sun has gifted her with superpowers. Before she quite has it all figured out, though, Rebel rams his craft against her and fires another laser, point-blank against her head. This one sends Kara headlong into a crumbling rocky hill. Linda has recovered by now and flies in to attack Rebel, but finds herself caught in a sudden furious gust of wind. She sees that her opponent is hit by it as well, blown away. Turns out this was the result of Kara's super breath. When the Kryptonian sees that Linda was caught up in the draft, she apologizes. She's only watched Superman use all his powers with a telescope in a rocket ship, but she hasn't used any of them yet, so she's not used to them. The next power she tries out is heat vision, and she manages to fry a hole directly through Rebel's ship, 
and then blow up a big chunk of it. Astonished by this power set, Linda asks her how she's doing this and where she comes from. Kara turns around to answer, but doesn't realize that she still has her heat vision going, and hits Linda square in the chest. Kara immediately cuts off the beam and apologizes profusely. While not mortally wounded, Linda is keeled over in extreme pain. Kara continues to apologize. I'm really, really sorry. I wanted Superman to be proud of me. I wanted to be, you know, a supergirl to his Superman, but instead I injure someone my first time at... Something about this speech sets Linda off, and she is suddenly convinced that she knows what's going on here. In her tenure as a superhero, she's had to deal with all kinds of supernatural nonsense. In particular, one demon named Buzz, who constantly would toy and manipulate her. Linda begins yelling and berating Kara, telling her to drop the act and stop trying to trick her. As she is yelling, though, Kara begins to cry. So stop it! You, you're so mean! I know I hurt you, but when someone says they're sorry, you don't start yelling at them. And at least you'll stop hurting soon. Me. I lost my homeworld. My city. My parents. That hurt's never going to go away, but you don't see me yelling at you and calling you Buzz, whatever that's supposed to mean. She doesn't know why she ended up here instead of Metropolis, like her rocket's guidance system was designed to do. But she's not going to stick around here and be yelled at anymore. She's going to go find Superman. To be continued. I included this issue as Supergirl's resurrection as a technicality. For those of you following along from episode zero, one of my stipulations for what would count as a resurrection is that the character does not return to death within the same issue or sequential multi-part storyline. Technically, that's true for this. This storyline named Many Happy Returns doesn't end with Kara Zor-El dying, though if you read the storyline to the end, you could argue I'm being very pedantic. This is the difficulty I have with researching this subject for DC's characters, though. In the Superman episode, for instance, we talked about Superman's first appearance as 1938's Action Comics number 1. However, if you go by the DC fandom wiki, that's not the same character who dies and returns in the 1990s comics. That version, the post-crisis Superman, is listed as first appearing in 1986's Booster Gold number 6. But if I'm interested in chronicling the character's lifespan as he's understood in pop culture and by the general public, I'm not setting the start at Booster Gold number 6. Who cares about Booster Gold number 6? It's essentially a ship of Theseus problem, like that WandaVision clip I used between segments. How much of one's parts need to remain the same to be considered the same entity? What's more important to identity, the continuity of how someone is recognized and understood, or some other essentialist inner quality? Bigger questions than can be answered on a comic book podcast, I'm sure. In any case, another Supergirl from Krypton named Kara Zor-El will fall to Earth from a rocket ship in 2004's Superman Batman number 8. That was the issue I originally planned on talking about for the third comic, until I found the story I ended up using. And that's going to do it for this episode of Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, you can share it on social media and in conversation, and you can rate, subscribe, and review on your podcatcher of choice. We've got just a couple more episodes to round out this season. In two weeks, there will be an episode on Professor X, and after that, we'll cover his sometimes friend, sometimes nemesis, but always thematic counterpart, Magneto. Finally, to cap off season one will be an episode on the Scarlet Witch. Until then, always remember, there may be an infinite number of universes, but there is only one you.
Peace.